Okay, welcome again, friends. Today, we're continuing in our series, the book of Acts, and we're currently in chapter 7, and we're going to do something a little bit different today than what we usually do, okay? Usually, when we come into the sermon time, I would read the Bible passage first, and then I'll do the sermon introduction, and then I'll do the three points, or the however many points for the sermon, right? But today, I'm going to flip it a little bit, all right? So, I'm going to do the sermon intro first, right now. And then after this, then I'll read the Bible passage, and then after that, I'll get to the sermon points. Why are we doing that? First, because I wanted to prep you guys. It's a very, very long passage to read, okay? It's 53 verses long. It's by far the longest passage I ever had to preach on. To be honest, I almost skipped reading it all together this Sunday, but then our elder Gray's voice, it was in the back of my head saying, shame on you. So... I'm reading it uh, right now. That's the only reason why. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, we got to train our minds to be able to take big chunks of passage and study it well, or else we'll never mature in the Lord, okay? Second reason of why I'm doing the intro first, because I wanted to give you context for the passage, or else it's going to be boring and it'll make no sense, okay? So what's the context of our passage today? Our passage today is actually a long defense speech given by a guy named Stephen, Remember the guy that we studied last week in Acts chapter 6? He was put in a judicial court of law because, uh, it was actually a death trial, because his own Jewish friends and family uh, accused him of, because he believed in the gospel, because Stephen believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they accused him of three things. They accused Stephen of disrespecting God's people, or as they believed Israel, God's law, which is Moses, or the Ten Commandments, and God's presence, which is the temple, all right? There's three accusations that Stephen was accused of because he believed in Christ, because he believed in the gospel. One, because the gospel says that God's people isn't just Israelites. God's people is anyone and everyone who would believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, so they thought he was disrespecting them. Two, because the gospel also says that you're not saved by successfully obeying the law, the Ten Commandments. You're saved by grace through Christ, through faith alone. Because of that, they thought he was disrespecting the Ten Commandments, the law, Moses. And third, the gospel says that God's presence isn't limited to just the physical temple in Israel at the day, right? God is in all of us. The Spirit is in all of us who believes in Christ as Lord and Savior. You see the connection there? Because Stephen believed in the gospel, he was accused for disrespecting God's people, God's law, God's presence. And as you read this defense speech here in a little bit, pay attention to those three themes in the speech, okay? God's law, temple, uh, God's law, sorry, God's people, law, presence. Okay, it'll make it much more interesting to read. Okay, let's get into it. This is Stephen's speech as he defended himself while on death trial for disrespecting God's for being accused of disrespecting God's people, law, and presence. This is the word of God, taken from Luke, uh, uh, sorry, Acts, I don't know why I said Luke, Acts chapter 7, verse 1 to 53. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, 
not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made him known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried back to Sechem and laid him in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer in Sechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you not want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years has passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. But then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I come, I will send you to Egypt. Still with me? All right. This Moses they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. 
he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, and they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Thus says the Lord. Well done, everybody. I'll keep the sermon a little short this week. Don't worry, so that we can still leave in a reasonable hour. Okay. If that speech made no sense to you, I promise you you're not the only one. Let's try and clarify it right now, okay? And as we do that, as we clarify it, what we'll see is that Christianity is utterly unique compared to any other religion out there, any other philosophy out there. And I hope that when we see that, we'd be blown away by just how much the true God of the Bible loves and pursues his people, okay? That's what I hope we get from this passage, God's love pursuing us. Four things I want to point out from Stephen's speech today. First, the winsomeness of his defense. Second, the shocking twist he reveals. Third, the offense of his love. And fourth, the good news he never got to the winsomeness of his defense, the shocking twist he reveals, the offense of his love, and the good news he never got to. First point, the winsomeness of his defense. Let's start in verse 1. <coughs> so there we see the high priest, which at that day would have been Caiaphas, okay, questioned Stephen in a judicial court of law, by the way. And other high priests were there, right, picture the scene in your heads. Other Pharisees were there. Other religious officials and scribes were there. And they all asked Stephen in front of the masses, are these things so? Okay. Did you really just disrespect God's people, God's law, and God's presence? Because if you did, we're going to have to stone you. And the first thing Stephen said was, brothers and fathers, hear me. 
Now, this was the proper way to address religious officials back then by calling them brothers and fathers. See how Stephen was showing respect to the people that were treating him unjustly. <laughs> A particular brand of strength that I think we lack today. He was treating those who unjustly persecuted him with honor and respect, brothers and fathers. And then he offers his defense. He showed them how believing in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior doesn't make him disrespectful toward God's people, law, and presence. Okay, that's why he went through the Old Testament story. He starts in verse 2 by saying, look, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Accusation number one. I'm not disrespecting Abraham. He's the forefather of God's people, the Israelites, right? Nor am I disrespecting his descendants. Joseph is one of them in verses 4 to 5. Right? Joseph was rejected by his 12 rebellious brothers, thrown into the well, sold to slavery. You guys remember the story? But God protected him, made him COO of all of Egypt. No problem with Abraham or his descendants. They were our fathers, a phrase that Stephen used 11 times in this speech. Keep this in your minds for now. They're our fathers. And then he continues to show respect to Moses and God's law, accusation number two. He says in verse 20, when Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. No problem with Moses. Great guy. And then in verses 20 to 24, Stephen tells the story how even though Moses was rejected by his own rebellious people, he still loved them. He still went back to pursue them and redeem them out of Egypt. He is the redeemer back then for God's people out of Egypt. And then in verse 30 to 38, God gave him the Ten Commandments, and he obeyed them even when all the other Israelites rejected him and worshipped Baal instead, a false god. Moses and the law, good things. No beef with Moses. Okay? He's one of our forefathers, he says again in verse 32. And the high priests, now back to the scene. Picture what they're saying. They're probably thinking, okay, so far so good. And then he continues to show respect to God's presence in the temple in the Old Testament, accusation number three. Look at verse 44. He says, when God freed Israel out of Egypt, he told them to build a temple where God's presence dwelt in. And then the Solomon built a bigger one in verse 46. No problem with the idea of having God's presence amongst his people, amongst our fathers, he says again in verse 44 to 45. Now, back in the courtroom, everyone at this point must have thought, okay then, Stephen seems to be complying. He's not saying anything bad. He's respecting and identifying with us and with our fathers, Abraham, Joseph, David, Moses. Great. All was well. All was well. Until Stephen threw a curveball at them at the end of his speech, which leads us to our second point, the shocking twist he revealed. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but as Stephen was telling the Old Testament story here, here he would insert these tiny hints throughout the whole story preparing them for the bomb that he was about to drop at the end. Okay, what were the hints? Well, if you noticed, as Stephen was retelling these stories about the Old Testament heroes, Moses, David, all those guys, he would also mention the rebels in the story who rejected these heroes. You, you kind of saw that inserted throughout the story? So when Stephen talked about Joseph, for example, he also mentions Joseph's 12 rebellious brothers who rejected him and wanted to kill him. And when he was talking about Moses, he also mentioned the Israelites who rejected Moses and the Ten Commandments and worshipped Baal. And when he was talking about God's presence in the temple, he, he also mentioned these uh, people who would worship false gods like Moloch and Rephan. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the high priests and the Pharisees that were there. 
okay? You probably heard Stephen mention these rebels in the story, and you probably didn't think much of it. You probably just thought, okay, I guess he's just being detailed in his storytelling. I don't know, whatever, that's fine. So all was well, they're about to end the court, everyone thinking Stephen was being compliant, the gavel perhaps already on its way down, and then all of a sudden, midway, from the side of their ears, they heard Stephen in the background in verse 51 say, you stiff-necked people. And the gavel stops midway, heads turned, questions whispered. What did he just say? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You just picture the scene, right? Stephen's friends who were there, perhaps, covering their open mouths, some lowering their heads, knowing what's about to happen. You can just picture the high priest and the Pharisees utterly confused, thinking, I thought I was being compliant. I thought he was affirming that we and our fathers are God's people, and we have God's law, and we have God's presence among us. What's going on? And this is where Stephen dropped the bomb, right here. Look at the second half of verse 51. Stephen switched his language all of a sudden from saying our fathers to saying your fathers. You stiff-necked people, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And all of a sudden, it dawned on them. It clicked that this whole time, Stephen wasn't associating them with the heroes in these stories. <laughs> this whole time, Stephen was associating them with the rebels in the stories. As your fathers in these stories continue to reject the people God sent them to save them, to redeem them, so do you. You, high priests, you Pharisees, scribes, you're not Joseph. Don't read this and think you're Joseph. You're the 12 brothers who rejected him. You're not Moses. You're the Israelites who rejected him. You think you were the heroes, didn't you? You're not. You're the rebels. Your pride made you read yourself as the heroes in these stories. And by the way, before we judge the Pharisees and the high priests for identifying pridefully as the heroes in, in the Bible, let's first think about how we often make the prideful mistakes too, today. How many of us have read, I don't know, a story of David and Goliath, for example? And we would view ourselves as David, right? We associate with David, the hero figure in the story, and Goliath is our life problems, right? And if we just have enough faith in God like David did, we can defeat the Goliaths in our lives, which are financial issues, health issues, singleness, or if we're married, married it's our spouse because we're just never happy, right? And we read the story, and more often than not, we associate ourselves with the hero, with David, like the high priest and the Pharisees did. Or how many of you have been to Christian business conferences and heard the story of Joseph told this way. Even when people treat you unjustly at work, 
if you just have enough faith in God and work diligently like Joseph did here in this story, with integrity, with faith, your career will also bloom. And God will bless your business just like he blessed Joseph and made him COO of all of Egypt. How many of us read the Bible stories and associate with the heroes? You know what Stephen's telling us here? He's telling us that is the wrong way to read the Old Testament. We shouldn't identify with the heroes in these stories, but with the rebels. We're the rebels, all of us. And the reason why we have this tendency to automatically identify as the heroes in these stories, now, this will sound a little bit harsh, but, but I'm trying to help us empathize here with how hurtful this must have been for the Pharisees back then. It was hard to hear. The reason why I often automatically identify as the heroes in these stories, let me just confess my own sin here, is because I'm so self-centered that I've somehow found a way to make even God's Word all about me. I mean, how self-occupied must I be to receive a word from the eternal creator of the universe and think, oh, I guess these heroes are me. <laughs> That's what the Jewish high priest did here. They made it all about them. We, Israelites, we are God's people. We have God's law. We have God's presence. We are the heroes. And Stephen rebuked their pride and sense of self-grandeur, and immediately the gavel dropped and rocks were picked up. You just couldn't let it go, could you, Stephen? you miserable fool. You just had to say it. He did. He did. But not for his ego. Not for his pride. He had to say it because he loved them. Which leads us to our third point. The offense of his love. Now he's thinking, love them. How is any of this loving? He just insulted them. He called them rebels. That's not loving. That's hurtful. Yes, it is. But did you also notice that throughout Stephen's speech here, every time he mentions the rebels in the Old Testament, he also mentions how God tirelessly pursues these rebels. Look at verse 11 to 14 again. When Joseph's 12 brothers rejected Joseph, at the end of the day, Stephen said, remember, God still sent Joseph back to them during the famine. God still invited these rebels to come and live with him in Egypt where there's plenty of food. God pursued Joseph's rebellious brothers. And in verse 35, when the Israelites rejected Moses, Stephen told them how, remember, God later sent Moses back to deliver these rebels out of Egypt and into the promised land. God pursued the rebels. You see, Stephen identified the high priests as rebels not to spite them, not to hate on them, but to show them that God is still currently pursuing them. But how? How is God pursuing them? Moses isn't there anymore. David is gone. Joseph isn't there. Who did God send to pursue them? Well, friends, David is gone. But who is David in that story really meant to point to? If David's not meant to point to us, right, we've established that, then who is he meant to point to? Well, friends, think about it. Who is our shepherd king? 
who came to save us from the most gigantic problem we have in our lives, which is sin. Who is that? Yes, Joseph is no longer there to pursue them, but who is our true brother who delivered us out of the country of spiritual famine into his everlasting kingdom? Yes, Moses is gone, but who is our true redeemer who took us out of the slavery of sin into the promised land? Who were all these stories about? Jesus. God pursues the rebels who daily reject him, even today, in the person of Christ and for what he did on the cross for us. That's the point of these stories, and this is usually the clicking point, okay? This is where it clicks for many people. This is the moment that we realize that Christianity is utterly different than every other religion out there. See, other holy books, they may include the same stories. They may even have the same characters. But they all read it like the high priest and the Pharisees did here. That it's a collection of stories about heroes that we must follow in order to become more acceptable to God. Christianity, Jesus, the New Testament, flips that on its head and reveals that the Old Testament is really a story about a God who saves and pursues helpless, wretched souls who would otherwise have perished without him. It's not about us. It's about him. That in Christ, we have a shepherd king who not only risked his life to save us from our enemies, but gave his life so that we may be delivered and have victory. That in Christ, we have a true brother like Joseph who not only redeemed us by inviting us into his kingdom, but who died on a cross saying, I thirst so that we may, we may forever drink of his mercy and live. Why does Stephen have to say it? Why couldn't he just keep his mouth shut? Because he wanted his enemies to hear the good news of the gospel. He wanted his enemies to see how God is still pursuing them in the person of Christ, and hopefully they might live. He wanted to offer them the same mercy and grace he was given by God. But he never got to it, did he? He set it up really well in the speech, but at the end, he never got to conclude it to Christ. Why not? He's us to our last point. Because they killed him before he was ever able to. We'll see in uh, the next part of the story next week that Sam's going to preach that after the Jewish council here heard this story flipped on them that they're not the heroes, they're the rebels being pursued, their pride was so wounded, so hurt, that they crowd with a loud voice, it says, close their ears and rush toward him. It's like a child not wanting to hear words of instruction. Don't want to hear it. So they stoned Stephen, and he died. Sorry for the spoiler. Friends, this, I don't know, this might be the first time you're here today and you're hearing this gospel. This good news that God has pursued you and is pursuing you by dying on that cross for your sins. And if so, he's asking you to do a hard thing today. He's asking you to consider the possibility that this whole time, as you've been trying to save yourself, 
as you've been trying to impress God and earn a good place with him somehow through your religious deeds or morality, he's asking you to consider the possibility that it's all futile. If that's you, don't be too discouraged. Don't be. You haven't wasted these years. You might have had to go through it all to get to the point where you realize that you can't do it. And if all these years, if all it's done, it's brought you to your knees, that is not time wasted. On your knees is exactly the place God wants you to be. Because only there might we have the humility to identify with the rebels in these stories and finally receive the cross and live. Don't close your ears and run away like the Pharisees and the high priest did here. Receive him. You were never meant to be the hero. And if you're a Christian here today, I hope you're reminded that you're not here because you did it. See, oftentimes as Christians, we, we can forget that. You know, the Lord uses us to do something great, you know, or we have a good three-week streak of righteous living. We forget, and we start to rise up from our kneeling position and we start to slowly identify again with the heroes in these stories. Don't. Stay down. Never forget the sole reason why we're here is because God tenaciously and relentlessly loved us and pursued us. He's been like that forever, ever since the Old Testament. And yes, we are safe. We are safe in his everlasting arms, but not because we're clinging on to it, but because he's clinging on to us and has decided to never let us go. Christian, if you forget that, you'll never be able to have the kind of patience and strength and love that Stephen has here for the rebels out there. You'll never do that because you forgot that you yourself was a rebel pursued by God. Stay down. We are most sane, Christian, when we're on our knees. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful speech by Stephen that reminded all of us here we're not in the place that we're at because we did it. Oh, how often we forget that, how easy we forget that one good deed lifts us up from the kneeling position makes our chest pumped. Humble us, Father. Keep us on our knees. Remind us we're only here because you have decided in your eternal wisdom and mercy to pursue us, rebels. Keep us here forever, that we may be blessed as we are poor in spirit, meek, humble, and remind us as you remind us of this, give us also the love and the desire and the longing to pursue rebels out there, as Stephen did, for we, are only, we were only one of them who have been given grace. Help us also extend the same mercy and love to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.